0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at If You'll turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We're looking at the Final paragraph of chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. And it's a hard passage. It's a dispiriting passage. And Paul begins, he says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hands. And you read those words and you think, wow, if that's true for Paul, then what chance do I have? As a result, it's a difficult text, and and really, this whole section in chapter 7 can be difficult. There's the the encouragement that we can find in the idea that even Paul struggled as we do, that that even an apostle faced the same kinds of challenges that we face when it comes to living a life of faithfulness. But uh, that only gets you so far. Eventually, you start thinking, wow, if this didn't work for Paul... What good is it going to do for me? And it can feel pretty bleak. Interestingly, though, this is one of those paragraphs. It's one of those things, I don't know if you've had this experience before, but but sometimes you're forced to contemplate something that is not to your taste. Forced to endure something you wouldn't have chosen. Um, I had this experience once. I was uh, in a book club. We were working through a list of books that someone else had chosen. We were really committed to it. And what that meant was we had to read the good ones and the bad ones. And, uh, and there were plenty of bad ones that uh, I, I had no respect for at all. But I was on the hook and forced to kind of deal with them and experience them. And sometimes having to do that forces you to see what you wouldn't have seen otherwise. You can stare at something that you dislike and don't understand long enough, and suddenly you see something that you didn't notice before. You, you discover a detail that changes things and helps you see what's happening a little bit differently. I would argue that's what this passage is. The passage that, that we're looking at, I doubt very many kids go to wana and memorize Verses from this passage. This maybe isn't a place you might find yourself going for encouragement. But that might be because you haven't stared long enough at it. Because if you do that, you discover there is something here that is very encouraging. So hear the word of the Lord. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I said two weeks ago in talking about Romans 7 that what Paul does really is he walks us down the path of despair. He walks us to the doorway into despair only to throw it open and reveal Jesus standing there on the other side. And as I look at these verses, I think here you can see that very clearly. I find it to be a law, Paul writes, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And the way that he's speaking about the power of evil should remind you of the way God counsels Cain in Genesis four. When God speaks to Cain, he says to him, If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And if you'd only ever gotten to Genesis 4, that might seem like advice you could take. But you know how Cain's story works out. He does not successfully rule over it. And after him, a long line of human beings, some righteous, some not, have demonstrated the difficulty of taking this advice. And the question is, how are we to rule over it? How can we rule over this evil? Haven't we proven over and over again that we can't? So much so that when Paul refers to it, he refers to it as a law. He finds a law within him, competing with the law of God, but with the force, the power, the authority that that word law conveys. That inner conflict that he's already talked about, he now frames as a conflict between two laws, between two authorities, between two jurisdictions. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my flesh, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind. Unless you think it's an even struggle, toe to toe, the two laws fighting it out immediately, he says, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. In My inner being, I delight in the law of God, and that's what he calls the law of the mind. He has been renewed by the Spirit. There is a love that he possesses for that law. There is a desire that he has to follow after Christ, and it is real, and it is beautiful, and he wants it. But not with his whole person. He is now a divided self, and there is another law within him. In his members, he says, In his body, another law dwells. That's the law of sin. It is not only waging war, but it is winning. It is taking captives, holding him prisoner. Somehow, the law of sin in his flesh seems stronger than the law of his mind, which drives him and us to despair. He gives that exclamation. And then asks this question that really sums up that sense of hopelessness. Wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. Consumed under the rule of sin. Despite my justification. Despite my belief. Despite my faith still serving the law of sin in my members. What a wretch I am. And then he asks a question that reads like the kind of question whose answer is nobody. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? A cry of anguish and despair. You look up to heaven, who will deliver me? But of course, then he gives the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Who will deliver me? Christ will deliver me. Christ is our deliverer. He is the only deliverer. So Paul thanks God through him. So there's a conflict between the mind, which serves the law of God, and the flesh, which serves the law of sin. But actually, if you read the text that way, it's not quite right. If you read Paul's question, and then the words that follow as a kind of Q&A, as a kind of catechism, who will deliver us? Question, answer, Jesus will deliver us. True, but that's not exactly what is being said here. Not exactly the way that this text is communicating. When I said the, the, the chapter brings us to the door of despair, and it shows Jesus on the other ends. The question is, where exactly in the text is that door? And where exactly is Jesus standing? Now, if you think about that, a path that leads to despair, the ultimate despair, only to find Jesus on the other side, it's not just a good metaphor for this chapter. It's a good metaphor for, for gospel life. Isn't this what the gospel is constantly doing to us? Conviction of sin leads to despair. And yet in that despair, we discover that Christ and Christ alone is our hope. And then as believers, the continuing reign of sin in the flesh leads even us to despair. And in that despair, we discover something else, our perpetual dependence on the spirit for strength that we cannot do it ourselves but where exactly is the door in the text and where is Jesus standing if you take a look at this the easiest way to situate the door would be to say that the door is located at the end of chapter 7 and then Jesus is standing at the beginning of chapter 8 the beginning of chapter 8 which we'll look at next week there is therefore now no condemnation This great uh, manifesto on the life that we have in Christ. So seven gets us to the brink of despair. And at the beginning of chapter eight, here we are in the arms of Christ. So the chapter seven ends, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And then... In chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There he is. But in this case, Paul actually blows it. Paul actually spoils his big reveal. This would have been so beautiful if he could have brought us to the very brink of despair by the end of chapter 7, only in chapter 8 to reveal Christ to us, how moving that would have been. Uh, you would have gotten goosebumps at the beauty of it, but he he just can't do it. And so you get this strange interjection immediately after he poses the question. And it really messes up the rhetoric completely. Like if you're trying to make this a powerful piece of writing, the way to do it would be to hold back Jesus until people are, are crying out in despair. And then and only then to reveal him. Paul doesn't do it that way. In chapter 7, despite our transformation by the quickening spirit, we see that, that, that this longing we have to serve, God is thwarted by the flesh, by this law that is in the flesh, and that because of these two opposing reigns, we find ourselves captive. We find ourselves still servants of sin and naturally ask, what hope is there so that chapter 8 should be the big payoff? And Paul reveals that there is no condemnation that our hope is and was and will only ever be Christ that will hit us with such strength you'll feel it in your bones. But he just can't do it. He can't wait. The moment he poses the question that gives voice to all of the despair, he immediately answers it. Only not quite. It seems like he does. It seems like he's giving us the answer. He's giving us the answer, but not in the form of an answer. It's in a slightly different form that is easy for us to misread. When he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, what is he doing there? The question, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he just keeps on and gives the summary of the despair. So there's this interruption that takes place. As if, you know, the kid in the class who knows the answer and can't help but blurting it out. It's like Paul's that guy, he just can't keep it reined in. It makes me think, it's good that, that Paul was not the screenwriter for the Lord of the Rings the two towers. My favorite scene in the two towers. Honestly, my favorite scene in all of the Lord of the Rings movies is that battle of Helm's Deep at the end when you have this this actually kind of grim heroic final charge where all the heroes get on their horses and they're like, "Hey, there's, you know, a handful of us. We should totally charge into this this limitless number." of orcs and cut down a few of them before we die and it'll be heroic. Let's do that. And, uh, and it's, it is, it's glorious, but it's glorious in the, in the way that forlorn hopes are when people are willing to give themselves without any possibility of victory. And then they go out and they charge and they're, they're fighting and then you see as if it were like the sun rising over the ridgeline And everyone is blinded by this impossibly white light. And you look up and you see, and it's Gandalf coming with all of the allies to win the battle. It's one of those almost Christological moments, right? As a Christian watching that, you're like, wow, it's like Jesus coming on the clouds, you know, which is kind of, I don't know, interesting. But imagine, imagine the same scene and how it would play If Theoden and and his horsemen ride out to the orcs, and as they're riding and drawing their swords and about to clash, the camera cut to Gandalf poking his head over the ridge as if he's about to come down and intervene. And you're thinking, wow, that's a terrible way to edit this scene because all the power is let out of it. Like you've already told us what's going to happen. We already know that they're waiting. Like, like, don't do that. Like, keep us in suspense. Well, that's exactly what Paul's not doing here. He's posing the question and then he's immediately pointing us to Christ. But he's not really blurting out the answer to a question. It's not as if he can't contain himself, like, like Paul's like, oh, I know, I know, I know. I mean, of course he knows. There's something else going on here. I think it's the first time that we've seen it so far in the epistle to the Romans, but it's this thing Paul does where he lays out theology, and that theology leads to doxology. As he's writing it, as he's explaining it, he suddenly switches into this other gear, and he starts to praise God. Because that's what he's doing here. He's not giving us the information in the form of an answer. Instead, he's just worshiping. He's just doing what we do when we worship. What a strange place to worship. As he paints this black picture of servitude to sin, even now, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He pauses to worship and says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Our Lord. He thanks God through Christ for what he's about to do in chapter 8. He knows what's coming and he thanks him now. He can't wait to praise him. He interrupts the flow of the argument, the logical flow of the doctrinal argument. He interrupts it to give voice to ecstatic praise. Then and only then does he sum up the bad news. He won't hold it in. He won't keep Jesus behind the curtain until pulling back the curtain makes the biggest impact. He can't do it. Jesus is breaking out prematurely in the argument. And strange as it sounds, I think, one of the most important lessons we can learn here is from the way that Paul inserts worship into the despair the way that he worships before he reaches intellectually the solution that would cause him to do the worshiping. You get the praise before you get the reason for the praise. And I think there's a lesson there because it gives us a powerful way of understanding the nature of our sanctification, what the Spirit is doing in our lives right now. We have deliverance In Christ. But that deliverance. Is just too powerful to wait for the world to come. It is too powerful to wait. Until all the work is done. This way of speaking. This way of doing things is actually something that we're familiar with from Scripture, even if we don't quite know how to name it. It's, it's when the, the not yet of eschatology breaks into the already of the here and now. Like, where the promises that have been made for the future, our future hope, our future deliverance, suddenly decides, I can't wait. And we start getting expressions of it in the present. That's what's happening in our lives, and the Spirit working in us. We are not perfect yet in this life, but we are set apart. We are being sanctified. We have not been glorified, and yet we have little glimpses of what it will be like, because the grace can't wait. It interrupts even now, even in the midst of our struggle. Speaking of the work of Christ throughout the New Testament, there's so many strong statements of his power to deliver us. In Thessalonians 1.10, Paul says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. In Colossians 1, it says, The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferring us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then in Galatians 1, he says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And the author of Hebrews, you may recall when we were preaching through Hebrews, this passage, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus Christ, our mediator, the Lord of the gospel, is our deliverer. He is our deliverance. And when scripture speaks of that deliverance, and then you ask yourself, wait a second, is this deliverance Then, in the future, or is it deliverance now? Sometimes it seems like the answer has to be yes. Yes. Because occasionally, it seems really clear that that it's pointing to the future. But then at other times, it seems really obvious that it's indicating the present. The answer is kind of both. Both of those things are happening. This deliverance isn't complete, but it has begun. In our lives now. So that even as we work through the the hopelessness of the feeling. That despite the fact that I have faith. Despite the fact that I believe. Despite the fact that in my mind I want to follow him. Still I don't. Still I do what I hate. And all of the accompanying despair that follows after that. In spite of all that. Our deliverance breaks out in the here and now and gives us hope to cling to. It gives us little foretastes of what is to come. Foretastes that we can feel now and experience now so that like Paul, we can thank God even for what he has not yet done. We can worship him even in our despair. And if you think about it that way, there's some things to take away from this that I think are helpful. First of all, the gospel shifts our focus away from this world toward the life to come. And that's important. It's important that as believers, we understand that the comfort of the gospel is a comfort that points us forward to Christ's return and to the world to come. Because all too often, by focusing on this life and on this world, we lead ourselves to frustration, we lead ourselves to despair, thinking that if everything doesn't change now, then it's never going to change. That if I haven't been perfected now, then there is no hope for me. That's the consequence of a focus on this life. The gospel shifts that focus, shifts it towards the future when Christ returns. We look for fulfillment in eternal things rather than temporary ones. We recognize this world is not our home. We recognize that our treasure, our riches are not laid up in storehouses on this earth. And our eyes are fixed on the life to come. The gospel shifts our focus away from this world toward the life to come. But God does not make us wait until then for everything. All of that glory, all of that goodness that will be ours, God doesn't make us wait for everything. Instead, he gives us these little gifts, these little assurances, these little promises, these little interruptions of grace. And if you see those for what they are as pointers to the future, as reminders, don't forget what I've promised you. Don't forget my faithfulness. Don't forget that I will do everything that I've said I will do, and I will give everything that I have promised to give. If you see those things rightly, then they are a source of true hope. Sure, we will not be perfected in this life. You will never be without sin. On your best day, you won't be able to look back and say, wow, today I serve God with my whole self. I didn't mess up one time. Not one sinful thought. Not one sinful desire. Finally, I think I've got the hang of this Christian thing. It's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen on purpose. Because the point of sanctification in this life is not to make you perfect The point of sanctification is to teach you more and more to depend on Christ for everything. The gospel does not make us independent. It doesn't set us free from bondage to sin so that we can just be free agents. The gospel gives us more and more a knowledge of our dependence on God for everything. So sanctification actually reflects the pattern that you see in Paul's writing here. What sanctification is doing, and the Spirit is working in us to give us these assurances that no, you haven't been perfected. No, you haven't been glorified. But here's the proof that you will be. This little taste is the assurance that it will happen. There's nothing in your justification that you can point to and say, that's the part I did. When we talk about being justified by by grace through faith, part of the point of that is to be able to say that God did it all, not to cling to any vestige of pride and say the reason that I am saved is mainly God and only partly, a little part, me. No, not at all. We compare ourselves to others if we are in Christ and others don't believe in him. The one thing we can never do is say, oh, I get it. I understand. I understand the difference. The difference is I did the right thing and you did the wrong. I made the right choices in life and you made the wrong choices in life. No, it was grace alone. It was grace alone. Nothing in my justification to point to. No advantage, no platform, no reason to feel pride over others. But then the same thing is true for sanctification as well. There's nothing in our sanctification to point to and say, yep, that was me, which is weird because literally everything in your sanctification is you. It's your obedience. It's your action. You're doing it. And yet Paul says, it is God who works in you to will and do his good pleasure. It is the spirit working in you so that in our justification and in our sanctification, we rely on, on him alone, for everything. Which is the point. That perfect reliance on him. It's the lesson that our sanctification is teaching us, the lesson that our life is teaching us, the lesson that our despair is teaching us. Is that we don't have it within ourselves to do any of this. But we do have him to do it all. So the Spirit gives us glimpses, foretastes, of what we shall be when Christ comes again. Our deliverance is not yet complete, and yet we have tasted of what this full deliverance will be like. We experience it, even if we experience it incompletely, even in our despair. We can feel it, and we can thank him for it. Jesus is coming to deliver us completely, but God doesn't make us wait. Even now, the Spirit in us testifies that he will come, and he will make all things new. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org.